Assalamu alaikum everyone. So we're going to start directly. I will read the talk of the Sayyid. So this is will be like an entry to the <coughs> new course, which is the general prophet rule, inshallah, which will be 10 lessons. Sayyid will talk more about it. Please welcome Sayyid Jafar by Allah. 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 In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, uh, as it was mentioned, let me start by welcoming you all to this, uh, inshallah, second part of the series on Islamic doctrine. Uh, so maybe a very quick uh, recap of where we left off so that uh, if anyone is joining newly, they have a little bit of the context. And for those who have been with us since the beginning, uh, just a quick refresher reminder of what we've covered and so we can continue where we left off. Um, so this is the 21st lesson in the series of uh, lessons that have been written in a book by Sheikh Muhammad Taqi Masbah al-Yazdi, Durus fil Aqeed al-Islamiyya, which has been translated into English and it's available. So although we're not sticking 100% to everything that's covered in the book, uh, we try to complement it, supplement it with other materials so that you have a good overview of the classic theory of uh, Islamic theology. Uh, this is the curriculum that we're following. So the order of ideas and the lessons, we're trying to stick to what is in that book so that if anyone wants to follow uh, and use this as an, uh, a lesson uh, with a curriculum, then you can go back and review the lessons before or after and see that uh, we're covering every topic in depth. And then you can say at the end that you've actually covered one entire series on Islamic beliefs right from the beginning to the end. This lesson, Lesson 21, uh, the way it is uh, constructed in the book is basically starts with a little introduction, which is a reminder of what was done in Volume 1. So this is the beginning of Volume 2. Uh, then the author goes into the objectives of what he's trying to accomplish in this Volume 2, uh, which in other words is what we're trying to cover uh, under this general heading of prophethood. Okay, so you can both, you can look at it as what's being covered in the book or what is generally covered under prophethood. Uh, and then finally, there's a remark that has to do with the methodology and we'll talk about it. How are matters of discursive theology or ilm al-kalam, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. How are they traditionally covered uh, and how will they be covered in the next lessons? Because there's going to be a shift and you will inshallah notice it as we go through these lessons in the way we've presented the arguments and we've established their validity, you're going to start seeing that it's going to shift the type of argument, the type of evidence that's going to be presented is slowly going to shift from one lesson to another towards being more narrational or scriptural when we haven't talked about any of that until now. Uh, so a couple of preliminary remarks, uh, as we said, generally speaking about the book, the book is divided into three volumes. It's a three-volume book. Each volume has 20 lessons. So what we're trying to do in these lectures or these sessions is to 
match the lecture with the lesson. So that's sometimes difficult because some lessons have a little bit less substance and some of them have a little bit more. But so far, I think we've done okay in trying to uh, have a similar number of lectures to the uh, lesson so that it's easier for someone to follow. Uh, and of course, inshallah, maybe in the approach in the last uh, uh, point, we're going to try to stick to under 50 minutes for every lecture. So inshallah, we leave a little bit of time at the end for some Q&A related to the topic that we're discussing. So related to that, I'll also ask you please to keep your comments and questions till the end. So that if we're going beyond the 50, it's entirely my fault. Because uh, it's easy for me to blame you guys and say that's why I wasn't able to stick to the 50 minutes. Um, so maybe a, a quick reminder. What we covered in volume one, there's a number of lectures or, or lessons that had to do with generally understanding what religion is. So the author presented the notions of ideology uh, and worldview. Uh, which we said can be, you know, said differently under the heading of uh, a metaphysical position. When we put these two together, we get the notion of religion. So you have a system of beliefs, you have things that you believe in about the world, and you have actions that are going to derive from that system of beliefs. When you put those things together, the outcome is a religion. So after spending a few lectures, lessons around that to understand what it is and that it's universal and so on and so forth. We went into the more classic topics that are usually covered in theology. So those had to do with proving the existence of God, uh, moving from there to understanding the attributes of God, including his oneness. There were some lessons around that, splitting the attributes into attributes of essence and action, uh, and then ending with about three lectures, if I believe correctly, uh, having to do with the general topic of divine justice. Divine justice usually being separated from the rest of monotheism and tawhid under a separate heading, and we talked at length about the reasons for that. There are historical reasons. Uh, otherwise, divine justice, we're really talking about one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so it should be covered under tawhid. But given the importance that this question played, generally speaking, in the uh, the evolution of Islamic thought uh, on one side. And so it's importance on one side uh, and the history of the, the topic on the other together. That became one of the five principles of Islamic beliefs. So we have Tawheed and then we have Adl, when reality could really go together as one under Tawheed. And that was volume one. Volume two is going to be covering the general topic of prophethood. And we're going to talk in a moment about what that means and inshallah the topics that are going to be covered under that heading. And then volume three is going to be dedicated to all matters related to the resurrection and the afterlife. So this already gives you an idea of what will be covered under the general topic of prophethood. Um, so yeah, maybe a couple of more notes about the approach. So I mentioned one point. Maybe the other point is, do keep in mind that this is an introductory class. So we're obviously not going into the details. We want to cover the minimum that we need to cover to say we actually have a good understanding of the Islamic belief system from beginning to end. 
That's all we're trying to do. We're not going into the different theories. Where we can, we do, but I think those are the cases where we need to go into a little bit more detail to understand the history of a problem or an issue, uh, or because maybe some of the, if there's a difference in schools of thought, it's very relevant today. So this is where I'm gonna maybe go into a little bit more detail. Otherwise, where there's a general consensus, we're not going into you know, the, the exceptions and the marginal points of view and maybe some things that still require to, be, uh, to, to reach a higher level of maturity, some thoughts and theories that are not still accepted as being the mainstream or the classic version of the, of the theory. Those would be left to more, let's say, at least intermediary, if not advanced classes. That said, uh, and I think uh, I spoke uh, about that as well. If there are topics and issues that you think deserve to be discussed, either as a separate lecture or a series of lectures, note them down, let's talk about them, and if there is a need for that, we can dedicate series of lectures to those two. So I understand that we're going really fast. For those of you who are interested in some of the topics a little bit more, you want more depth than what we're covering, more meat. Uh, each one of the topics, the lessons that we're covering could easily become 5, 10, 15 lectures, what we're covering in one lecture. We're not going in detail here, we're go going very fast. Um, I think that's, uh, that's it. The other last point that I could mention very quickly is if you feel like you need more resources, so you want to have access to other books, references that cover those topics, let me know and we can cover them either during the lectures or I can send them to you afterwards if you want to go into a little bit more depth in any of this. Okay, so the beginning of the lesson, as we said, starts with an introduction. The author says, when we started in volume one, when we started this book, we started by saying that there are a number of questions that we can consider to be universal for all human beings. And we explained what we mean by universal, so I'm not going back to that. One of the questions has to do, and there are more clusters of questions than a specific question, but they can be grouped, lumped together under general headings. One of the questions is, where do we come from? How were we created? This can include human beings, and it can include the universe, the cosmos. And then, how does it work? Why does it work this way? So everything under that, those general headings have to do with the origin. Human beings universally want to know about their origin. So that's one series of questions. A second series of questions has to do with where are we going? What is the destiny of existence? What is the ultimate outcome of existence, the cosmos, the universe? And to me as a human being, what happens to me? What is my ultimate end? Is it death? Is there something after death? What awaits me? Is it something that matches more the deistic uh, worldviews or is it more the theistic worldviews? Is there a personal God? Am I going to be judged? Is there resurrection? And, and, and. So this is the question that has to do with the, the end. So we have the origin as be, being as one of the universal questions in human beings. And the other one has to do with the end. So these are the starting questions. And then the third one is the one that links the two. So given a certain origin, so I have to find my truth in that question, 
given that what I believe about the origin and given what I believe about the end, about the destiny and the outcome, then what's in between? How am I supposed to live? What is the meaning of all of this? What am I supposed to be doing? What's the meaning for all of it in itself? And what is the meaning of it for me? And this is the question of the path, the way, or what we refer to as a nubuwa, prophethood. So this is the question that we study under the general heading of prophethood. It's that path that goes, that links the origin to the end. So I hope, I don't know if I'm biased in thinking this or not, I've always thought that this is an extremely interesting topic, the topic of prophethood. It's not always presented in this manner, but it's really about the way we're supposed to live our lives. It's, I feel, a lot more practical than what we find in the uh, origin discussions, for instance, which usually are a lot more metaphysical. Now we're going to have to go into things that are much more practical for our lives before we talk about the end. Now, maybe something to keep in mind, and we can talk about it in a second too. Um, when we're trying to link the origin and the end, there are different approaches and different methodologies that we can use to get to these answers. So we have the origin, and until now, what we talked about was a lot more metaphysical, philosophical, rational. And we have the end, and we're going to talk about the end in a moment. What awaits once we pass away? What awaits the universe and what awaits us as individuals? So the question that we're asking is not only what is between the two. It's not only the path or the way or what am I, how am I supposed to live my life. It's what's a secure, safe, guaranteed way for me to reach the truth about this. Because now I'm in it. And I don't want to waste my time looking for different things. I want to find that one source of knowledge, that one source of information that is going to guarantee me being on that right path between the origin and the destiny. So in volume one, what was covered is the first question. We covered the question having to do with the origin. This is where we left off. The methodology that was used, so this is the author reminding us, he says, first of all, it was simplified arguments. We did not present all the arguments for every point we were making. We were presenting the best of the arguments. And the reason we're saying this is because we're going to follow the same methodology here. And the second point, and this one is important, is that we followed a rational methodology. When we were talking about religion and we were talking about ideology and worldview, when we were talking about the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we were talking about the attributes of Allah, nowhere did we say, this is what Imam Sadiq says, or this is what the Holy Quran says. And when we did, we did simply to refer to where those topics are addressed in our scriptures and in our hadith. But we did not use them as the rational or the evidence, proofs, argumentation for what we were saying. We established it based on reason only. And then sometimes when we had time and we could, or it was relevant, we would refer to where those topics appear in our scripture. 
So on one side, we said that the way we are going to address the religious topics that we're trying to address is not narrational. It's rational, therefore not narration, not scripture, one. And two, the only other one that we mentioned was, and it was not going to be based on mysticism, Gnosticism, uh, the illuminationist way of reaching reality. We said we did not cover that. We said we are not going to follow that uh, manner of reaching truths. And we also explained why. Why did we not rely on those? And in summary, we said that when we rely on the mystical Gnostic way, first of all, it's a hit and miss. It's relative, for myself, it's relative between one day and the next, one state and the next. Two. And three, from one person to another. And so my truth is not going to be your truth. I cannot impose it on you. It becomes a subjective experience. We're not saying that it's not valid. We're just saying we cannot build the entire edifice of our belief system on a relative proof, on a relative argument that may apply to someone but not to someone else, or that may not be tested equally for everybody. So we put that aside. And then we looked at the narrational proofs, the scriptural proofs. So what's wrong with those? Well, the issue is we are claiming that we are going to build the system of beliefs on a rational foundation. Therefore, I cannot come and claim things, state things that you do not agree with. Who is you? So if I'm talking with you and you happen to be of the same belief system as I already am, then there's no point in doing all of this. So we have to assume that we're talking to the person or we're putting ourselves in the position and the status of the person who is completely empty, blank slate. I'm about to start looking into religion. We want to build it from scratch, right from the beginning. For me to come and say, there is a verse in the Quran that talks about this. It's fine that it talks about this, but I cannot use the Quran as a proof yet. Before I do that, I have to establish that the Quran has authority, authenticity. And to do that, I have to first establish the prophethood of our prophet. Muhammad before I can say, and the Qur'an is his miracle, and the Qur'an claims this, and it was revealed, and it was infallible, and I can rely on it. And before I do that, I need to establish that there is such a thing as prophethood and revelation. And before that, I have to establish that there is a God who is a theistic God, a personal God, who has the types of attributes that would make him send a prophet or a messenger to humanity. Until I do all of that, I cannot just jump into the Holy Qur'an and say, and the Qur'an says, therefore you must believe, and if you don't, then you know, you're not being logical, you're not being objective. No, I have to establish all of that first. So until all of that is established, I cannot jump into the scripture. And in this case, I'm only using the scripture until now as the Holy Qur'an. Now if I want to add the hadith, that adds another layer of complexity to this, and we'll talk about it at the end. So this is the reason why we have not relied on any other types of proofs except rational until now. So going forward, this heading of prophethood, what do we do about it? So at this point where we're just starting, we're going to follow the same methodology. We're going to continue to use the rational proofs because until now, we haven't established anything more 
than what we have said. We have not established that the scriptures can be relied on. So this is what we're going to attempt to do in this series so that we can start using them. And throughout, in a few lessons, you'll see that that will be established. So within this series, inshallah, at the end of it, this is where you're going to see in part one, the one that we're covering now, this series of 10 lessons, 10 lectures. Inshallah, at the end of it, we will have established the scriptural authority of the Holy Quran that will take us, that will take the discussion and the types, the nature of the proofs, arguments that we're presenting in a different way. So if we go, let's fast forward a little bit, and this is just to give you a taste of things to come, but we're not going into all of that right now. If we look at the topics that are usually addressed under the heading of resurrection, al-ma'ad, the afterlife. So where do they fall? Do we have to wait for the establishment of the authority, the validity of the Holy Qur'an and the narrations before we can talk about them? Or can we start talking about them even though we haven't done that yet? So resurrection or the ma'ad, the last principle, inshallah, volume 3. This one is an interesting one because both can be done for it. And in fact, the same can be said about prophethood. And in fact, I'm going to add a part that's not in the book. The same could be said about monotheism and about the existence of God. Okay, it just depends what you're looking at and what kind of detail you're looking for. Reason can take you so far, but it stops at a certain point. Reason can prove to us that resurrection is a must. Afterlife is a must. Justice is only going to be reestablished if you accept an afterlife. Otherwise, those who say life is unjust, existence is unjust, it's true, it is unjust, unless you believe in an afterlife. If you do believe in an afterlife, then there is justice. That part we can prove with reason alone. But if you ask me to use my reason to give you the details about the afterlife, now reason can't say anything about that. We need to go and see. We need to experience something. Human beings have a limited reason. You need to work with something to do something with it. If you have absolutely nothing to work with, you can't take that and create an argument from it, create a content from it. You can't. So the details, they come from the scriptures. They must come from the scriptures. And in fact, we're going to inshallah talk about it at least very quickly in summary. But this is one of the points of, re of religion, one of the points of revelation, to give us access to types of information that reason alone can never reach. You must rely on scripture for those. You must rely on revelation for those. Same thing for prophethood. There's a part of it, and inshallah we will do that in the next lesson and so, there's a part of it that can be established based on reason alone. But if you go into the details of it, this is where details cannot be reached with your reason alone. How many prophets were sent? How many prophets need to be sent? <coughs> what kinds of religions did they come up with? What kinds of laws did they have? The details of their characteristics. How were they chosen? None of that can be reached just with rational arguments. This is where you have to go back to the scripture and see, were you given any content, any information or not? So, as we said, this is a, a, a taste of things to come. But definitely for prophethood, this is something to keep in mind that there is a part that we are going to establish based on reason. And we can push it to a certain point until we reach 
the validity of scriptures, and then we can start relying on scriptures for the details. Now, based on everything that we've said until now, um, someone may wonder, so why are we presenting the topic of prophethood before the one of resurrection? Because we said the manner in which a human being should think universally, your typical human being who has not already been told what to believe and how to believe, they will think about the origin and they'll think about the destiny first, and then they'll think about what's in between, which is, because once you establish those, then this derives out of them. So why are we not talking about resurrection and afterlife first? So the easy answer is because classical theology presents them in this order. So the author tells us, and I don't want to confuse things by creating a new order, I'll just follow the same traditional order that is found in other classic works on Islamic theology. The other one, he also mentions it without much explanation, but he just mentions it in passing, which is pedagogically, for teaching purposes, it does make it easier, it has certain advantages to present the topic of prophethood before the, pro the topic of resurrection. And as we said, inshallah, we'll go back and forth where we are going to be talking about things that have to do with the resurrection that we haven't shown yet, we haven't demonstrated yet with proofs and arguments, we're basically going to defer. We're just going to say, and this will be covered once we get to resurrection. And the opposite. When we're going to get to resurrection, we're going to refer back to things that we already covered in prophethood. And this way, inshallah, the lessons are going to be complete with valid arguments. So the second heading of this uh, lesson has to do with what are the objectives of this volume. So as a reminder, we said every volume is made up of 20 lessons. This series that we have currently right now is going to be made up of 10. So we're covering half of volume two. And we're going to talk in a moment of why that split. But for us, inshallah, at the end of the 10, inshallah, we follow the schedule. And at the end of the 10, we're going to reach the season of Muharram. So we're going to stop. And then, inshallah, following Muharram, we can start again with the second half of volume two. So what are we trying to do? The author tells us his objective in this volume is to establish another source of safe knowledge. Safe as in something you can really rely on. Secure, guaranteed, reliable. He wants to make sure that you understand that beyond sense perception, you have access to another type of information and knowledge to establish your life, to build your life upon. This is what we're trying to do in volume two. And this other type of information is divine revelation. So yes, human beings have reason. Yes, human beings have science and empirical knowledge and sense perception. And all of that is good and you can do a lot with it. But there is also another type of information, which is divine revelation. And this is what we're trying to establish in this volume, or at least in part one of this volume. Now, the majority of human beings do not themselves directly experience divine revelation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not talking to us directly. And that's why for the most of us, this is not going to be something that we just take for granted that this must be happening. That's why there is proof that is required. We have to spend a little bit of time seeing, one, is it possible? Two, are there claims that it happened? And three, of those claims, are some of them authentic? 
And four, what were those claims exactly? What, what was claimed? What was the message? What's the point? What do you want me to do? Let's say there is a God and there is a prophet and there was a message. Now what? What do I do? So all of that is what we will cover. So the point here is that, yes, this may not be known to the majority of people, but it becomes, and we talked about that in volume one, the importance of studying these kinds of topics. We said sometimes people out of laziness or out of a fallacy, they're going to say there's too much information. It's a waste of time to study these things. This is where you have to go back to the idea of the probability. How important is this? What's the price you're paying? Maybe there is a lot of information. Maybe it will take you a lot of time. But generally speaking, human beings do invest money and time when they think something, an outcome, is actually worthwhile. This has never stopped humanity when they think something is important. So if the claims we're making are actually have the possibility, the probability of being that important, then they must be studied. So that's layer one. Layer two, once they have been studied, and we, so it's incumbent, it's an obligation upon us to study them. That's one. And two, once they have been studied, if we find out, we conclude that they were valid, then it becomes an obligation to follow what was found out, to follow that communication, to adhere to it, to follow its teachings. So it, the, it, there's no longer a choice at the end. I'm free whether I accept it or not. One, layer one, is it's actually incumbent upon you as a mature, soul, normal, normal human being to study the, those claims. You cannot afford not to study them. And once you have studied, if your result, your outcome, your conclusion, based on your reason is that those claims are valid, then you're obligated by your own reason to follow, to adhere to those claims. Okay? So that's the, the idea here. So, you know, yeah. I know what's at the end, but yeah. just quickly, if you have a second. Yeah. Some people, they just seem so aloof and so disinterested. Like, you know, it would be so hard to inspire them or to motivate them to even consider looking into mm -hmm. that. Would you suggest anything or recommend anything like to try to encourage them, motivate them? At, at a very practical level, I think it's a lot of it is, you know, something we mentioned very quickly in volume one, but I think it's going to be a lot more clear in volume three. So, and this is something we can take from our scriptures, from the hadith, from the Holy Quran. You know, we can talk all we want about these, uh, these matters, these topics, issues at a theoretical level. But at the end of the day, we're all dying. And if you know, you really fully realize that there's something inevitable that's happening to you. It's not a choice. It's not a maybe. You know, tomorrow you have an exam. It's not a maybe. That exam is happening. Usually human beings are actually going to act. If it ha hits them that this is actually happening. So long as it has not hit them. And this is, by the way, what we refer to as Iman. Okay, when we say we have Iman, it's not in theory, I know something. It's, it hit me what actually is that something. There's a difference between knowing in theory that I'm going to die 
and fully realizing that I will die. And this is why so much time has been spent by so many philosophers on the issue of death. Just the notion of death. And you see like all of existential philosophy and all of that is <laughs> the central point there is death. Heidegger, uh, other, other big philosophers, they built entire huge systems of thought based on the idea that death is the inevitable central issue in a human being's life. And you go back to parapsychology and psychology, psychoanalysis. It's all about the centrality of death. You know that you will cease to exist, according to them. And therefore, what's the point of anything? Or maybe you don't cease entirely. And then so what? That possibility alone became the... But I think a lot of people who are aloof, it's because it does not hit them yet. Okay, so if you want to live, as the author said in volume one, he said, this is more like living like an animal. So if that's how you choose to live, well, I have nothing to say. But if you want to live like a full human being, you want to engage with things at a conceptual, rational level, well then, there is a, an obligation, an imperative. If you know something, you have to do. You can't pretend that you don't know this. You know that you're dying. Do you realize? That's why in our religion, there's that insistence of remember death. The Holy Prophet says, remember death. You want to kill your desires and things that you can't control? Remember death. Hadim al Okay, the thing that will destroy or annihilate your pleasures. Just remembering death. Or we, we have that much insistence in our religion of go visit the cemetery. Make sure that you're part of every janazah when someone passes away. Go. Why? This is a reminder for you. It does nothing to the person that said they passed away. It's a reminder for you that this is happening to you very soon. Very soon you're going to be underground. Very soon you're going to be the one carried on people's shoulders. So I think this is the part that, and here in these societies, of course, we live in a world that's so detached from death, so sanitized that you don't get any, any clear, direct contact, of course. Unpopular to try to use that. Yeah. So I think yeah, you're going to be negative and cynical yeah. and pessimistic and all of that. Anyways. Okay, okay you're welcome. This is now a little point that I'm going to mention. The distinction is not made in this lesson. But I think it's a very important one to keep, especially for those of you who want to go back and maybe refer to other works. So I think as soon as we understand it, we'll see that it, it was logical for us to split the, this series of 20 into two parts of 10. When you study classic theology, kalam, aqa'id, they say that nubuwa, the topic of nubuwa or prophethood, they split it into two headings. There's a heading called al-nubuwa al-amma, general prophethood, and al-nubuwa al-khasa, specific prophethood. There are topics that have to do with this or that prophet. Where when I want to talk about, was Muhammad, this man specifically, was he a prophet and a messenger? What, was, what were his characteristics? What was characteristic of his people? Why was he sent to them? What was his miracle? All of that falls under specific prophethood. I'm talking about one prophet. I'm talking about one message. So if I step back and I look at all those people who claim to be prophets and messengers, we're going to see that there are topics that are going to come back again and again. These are common questions. If we don't establish the validity of those questions, if we don't establish the validity of those first, we're going to have to look at them Every time there's someone who claims prophethood, we're going to have to look at them. So those questions that are general, universal to all the prophets, 
They've been put together under the heading of general prophethood. So this is what we're going to cover. So here, this is where he says, what am I trying to accomplish in this volume? So he says, the necessity of prophethood. We're going to explain in a moment what we mean by that. The necessity of prophethood. Because there is more under there. A lot of important notions that we may not think about directly, intuitively, when we just see that heading. From there, we have to talk about the infallibility of the revelation. Because that's always going to be a question. How do we ensure that what was revealed is actually what was revealed? This is your claim. Who says this is what was the message? Infallibility of the prophets themselves. Authenticity of the claim of prophethood. Miracles. And then, the multiplicity of the prophets and the multiplicity of their religions, or their books, their scriptures. Once we've covered all of that, then we go to our holy prophet. We go to Prophet Muhammad and this is going to be the split between general prophethood and specific prophethood. So we have to talk about him as a person and as a prophet, we talk about his message, we talk about his miracle, we talk about things related to him specifically. All under the heading of specific prophethood. And given that this is an introductory course, this is all we're covering, and then we'll move from there to imamah, because it's an extension of prophethood. We're not going to do that if this was a very advanced class or we had all the time we wanted. We would do that for every prophet. We would go back and look at Prophet Jesus. We would look at Prophet Moses. We would look at Adam salam and onwards. All of that falls under specific prophethood. Okay? So when we look at the details here, we start seeing that there's no way that we can cover all of that with only rational proofs. So slowly, as the lessons are going to go, we're going to start introducing some scriptural proofs. Okay? And once it's, you're going to see the very clear-cut link after establishing the validity of the Holy Qur'an, it's going to become clear that now there's going to be a mix of rational and scriptural proofs for everything. So here I wrote summary because I wanted to present this information that was presented as one paragraph in the lesson. I wanted to present it very, a little bit differently because I think it adds a little bit maybe of, of clarity or order to, to you if you're trying to embark on this and maybe in another curriculum, another book, another lecture. The idea here is general prophethood has these general four topics under it. So the first one has to do with what we call, at the top here, it was called the necessity of prophethood. So sometimes that's under the heading of the necessity of religion. Sometimes that's under the heading of the necessity of revelation. Why is it necessary for human beings to have access to divine revelation? That's the question. So that's one topic under general prophethood. A second one. The validity of the claims of prophets. So when someone says, I'm a prophet, how do I establish that they really are a divine prophet? So this is the general heading, very big, of miracles. What are miracles? What are they supposed to do? How are we supposed to deal with them? Question three. What is revelation? What's the nature of revelation? How are we supposed to interact with it? And the last topic, now we look at the prophets themselves. 
what are some of the characteristics that we have to find in everyone who claims to be a prophet. Otherwise, there's something that's not going to work. The biggest one and the one that you know, most people spend the most time on is infallibility. And it's important and we'll talk about it. But there are others and we'll skim through them very quickly. But there are others. If you don't have the characteristics that enable you to be a social leader, you can't be a prophet. You have to be someone who can attract people and retain people. If there's anything in your personality that pushes people away, you can't be a prophet. It doesn't work. It defies the divine purpose of sending you as a messenger. So we'll talk about those characteristics of the prophets later. The last topic in this lesson is the methodology that is used in ilm al-kalam, in kalam, in general. So maybe a quick reminder, the way we have used in this lesson, what we've said is we're going to use the terms kalam, ilm al-kalam, beliefs, uh, system of beliefs, uh, theology, discursive theology, which is perhaps the most accurate translation of ilm al-kalam, discursive theology. We're, we've been using them uh, interchangeably and we'll continue to use them interchangeably. But here, I'm going to use them as the author has in their technical, in the technical manner. Because the author is going to try to distinguish between the proofs that are traditionally used in ilm al-kalam or al-mutakallimin, the scholars of kalam, the classic theologians in Islam and falsafa, Islamic philosophy. <clears throat> so the question that he wants to address is what is the difference between falsafa, Islamic, the uh, Islamic philosophy, and I'm adding Islamic intentionally here because falsafa and philosophy don't really match. Falsafa in Islam has usually been the equivalent of what we in the West call metaphysics. Okay, so this is the main concern of Islamic philosophy, falsafa. They study the topics that are studied in metaphysics only. So things that have to do with epistemology and the theory of knowledge, ontology and the theory of being or existence. These are the topics that are studied under falsafa. This is where it starts. The rest is the more traditional way that was used elsewhere from Greek philosophy onwards that included everything, including physics and the natural order of things and all of that. Okay? So the difference, what is the difference between falsafa and kalam, ilm al-kalam or discursive theology? So here it gets a little bit messy in the course. One part, one dimension of the difference between them has to do with the subject matter. Philosophy or falsafa, Islamic philosophy, the topics that it wants to address do not match 100% the ones that we're trying to address in discursive theology, in ilm al-kalam. The point of ilm al-kalam is what? The point of it is to establish a true system of beliefs. Beliefs that are truthful. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that in a second. Philosophy, that's not the point. It's not trying to establish a truthful belief system. It's trying to reach the truth so that, depending on which philosopher you follow, generally speaking, it's so that you reach perfection. That's the way they say it. You reach perfection by perfecting your knowledge, which perfects your being. 
which is a lot broader and it's going to be using different methodology and that's the second point, the second difference than what we need in Ilm al-Kalam, what we need for aqa'id and beliefs. The point is not the same, therefore they're not looking at the same topics. Until now today, there's a lot of work being done on topics that fall way out of, outside of theology, the domain of theology, that are studied under falsafa, philosophy. So the subject matter overlaps, but it's not an exact match. There are topics, if I want to study the existence of God, I'm going to find it in both. But there are other topics that don't overlap. There are topics that are only sitting in theology, because theology, the purpose, and I'll mention them after I talk about the methodology, the purpose is establishing a truthful belief system. So I do whatever I have to establish that. I look at whatever I have to look to establish that. Philosophy is not interested in that. So let's go to the methodology. And philosophy says, the only way I will do that is only by using reason. Pure reason. I'm not allowed to use anything else. That's falsafa. There is no prior commitment. There's no prior belief. There's no, not even an idea that I must reach a truth. I have to see where reason takes me. And wherever I land, I land. That's the claim of the philosoph, of the philosopher, the Islamic philosopher. The theologian says, there is a truth, and that's what I'm trying to reach. So there's a pre-commitment to a truth. And this is a third distinction. So first, they're not looking at the same things. There's an overlap. So there are things that they're both looking at, but there are things that only theology is looking at, and there are things only philosophy is looking at. So we can't say they're the same. One. Two, the way they approach it, theology says, I will use whatever I have to use to reach the truth. And specifically, and most certainly, I will use scripture. Because that's the shortest way to get there. And that gives me access, the only thing that gives me access to a lot of the truths. Where reason is not going to be able to help me. So the theologian, the theologian is going to be using both reason and scripture. Philosopher says no, only reason. Scripture has, it's not my domain, I have nothing to do with it. If it matches what I'm saying, great. If it's not, I'm following my reason. And third, there is a pre-commitment. As a theologian, I'm pre-committed to a truth. This does not mean that they're dogmatic. And this is a point I'm trying to make in the next slide. Because I think there's this idea that theologians, that's why it's called kalam, and we talked a little bit about that. It's called kalam because it's always discursive. Said about this difference between philosophy and theology, we don't have time to go through it. But basically, if you go back in the history, the evolution of ilm al-kalam, you see that there was a split. There were two distinct fields at some point. And then it started getting a little bit more blurry with the works of Al-Fakhr al-Razi and Al-Ghazali on, on the Sunni side and the Shi'i side with Nasir al-Din al-Tusi. They introduced, and then Al-Alam al-Hili, they introduced a lot of the approach and the claims and the topics that are only addressed in falsafa. They introduced them in Ilm al-Kalam. And so the line became a lot more blurry. And then with time, there's this notion that was developed as though theology... Ilm al-Kalam only has to do with proving that I'm right, regardless of whether I'm right or not. Which is not, not true. And it's only blindly following scripture 
I don't care about reason. If it's in the scripture, I follow it. No, that's not what theologians say. There's no theologian who claims that, except Ibn Taymiyyah, who says you follow the scripture blindly. Even today, the Salafis, if you go back to the Salafi scholars and you see when they produce, for instance, their arguments for prophethood or for resurrection, they start with the rational arguments and then they mention the scriptural arguments. So no one says, I blindly follow. I establish the truth based on reason and then I claim always, we all do, that scripture and reason are matching perfectly. So these are some misconceptions about theology. Uh, let me just see, maybe very quickly mention the last thing is, so there is an overlap between the two. There is an overlap between the two. Where is the overlap? The overlap is in the rational theological issues. There are theological issues that are not rational. Okay, if I go into the details of imama, or if I go into the details of what awaits us in the resurrection after life, those details are not rational. Those details are scriptural. Aql cannot reach them. Reason cannot reach them. So in that case, we can't call those rational theology. These are the scriptural theology. The rational theology is what I can establish, what we've been doing from the beginning of these lessons, what I can establish based on reason. And this is why some of our scholars have said there is a rational theology and there is a scriptural theology. Kalam aqli, kalam naqli. Okay, so keep that in mind. And we have arguments here, uh, ex examples here. I don't think I need to explain them. It's uh, clear. I believe we finish with this slide. So very quickly, as a recap, theology is not only discursive or polemical. Theology does try to establish truths for itself not for discursive reasons, not for polemical reasons. It tries to establish its own truths, one. Two, it does not say, I blindly follow scriptures. And three, I didn't add it, but the first one here, the third uh, here, where we said it's not dogmatic. Keep that in mind. We have a lot, a lot of our scholars in Islam who actually went from one school of thought to another who were theologians. Why? So it's easy to say they're dogmatic, they're blindly following a pre-commitment and only scripture. So why is it that they are one of the groups that converts the most from one school to another? It's because they're looking for the truth. It's because it's not dogmatic. It's not only polemical. They actually go to the depth of it and they use their reason and they assess and they say, this does not make sense and this makes sense. So to say cheaply and easily, you know, to dismiss them and say it's all blind faith in the scriptures. That's not the case. It's unfair to the theologians to say that. Reason is valid, logical thought. So we said the philosophers say, and theology agrees with the rational part of reason. So maybe just a quick note here. Reason is not what I find personally reasonable and what I don't find reasonable. I call reason. That's not reason. Reason is a very specific term that means you are using the most reliable, the most valid logical processes so that you are not contradicting yourself, your reasoning, your arguments, don't contain any fallacies, that you have proper thinking. This is reason. 
No two human beings should disagree on reason. If they do, it means there's no reason there. We're going beyond reason into something else. Okay, so that's a quick point about reason. Then scripture. We've talked a lot about scriptural, scriptural. So first point is, we said, obviously, that the biggest scriptural argument, the biggest scriptural evidence is going to come from the Holy Quran for us. Well, even that is not straightforward. So as a theologian, when I start going into the scriptural arguments and proofs, can I actually rely on what I'm reading at face value, or do I have to interpret? And then what school of thought and what process and what methodology do I use to interpret? So that opens that whole door, that whole field of Quranic interpretation. The moment I start saying there is a scriptural proof, that's one layer. Second layer is, and what about the ahadith? So before I can say, but there is a narration, there is a hadith that says, I have to establish the validity of that hadith. And that opens the door to entirely new sciences. The most well-known being Ilm al-Hadith, or Ilm al-Ruwayah, or Darayah. Right? So you open the door to the science, or the sciences of narration. So you study the contents of the scripture coming to you from the Imam, or from the Holy Prophet, and you also study the chain of transmission and the lives of the people who have narrated this hadith all the way to you. Each one of them going back 10, 12, 14 centuries. And this becomes Ilm al-Rajal, the study of the chain of narrators. So this also gives us an idea of why these sciences de were developed with time. These were not, you know, for the fun of it. And this is where you see how central it is to have a field like Aqaid or theology, and then how these other sciences are secondary to it. So if you want, because I've received that question a lot, and that's why I'm mentioning it, if you want to put your effort and energy somewhere, well, I would say at least make sure you master the, the central fields first, the central sciences first. Don't spend five years on Ilm al-Kalam or Ilm al-Rajal or Ilm al-Hadith if you don't know your belief system inside out first. Because these are peripheral, they're secondary. They were put in there to support a central field. These are secondary fields. The same thing with, you know, just like you would study Arabic to become a better interpreter of the Qur'an. Right? The point is the interpretation of the Qur'an and knowing the Qur'an. This is secondary to it. And it's in the same manner. And that's all we had for today. We have time. We have about 10 minutes. So we'll start with the sisters. Any questions related to the topic or like... Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to start with Abdullah. Oh. So let's see. You would say that uh, philosophy and uh, theology doesn't exactly, exactly seem. So what we mean when we say Islamic philosophers, but does that mean uh, they're not uh, theologians as well? But become a philosopher, why? Because they go into the subject without pre-commitment. Is that why we call them Islamic philosophers? Because they try to be advised and try not to be dogmatic or even try to be like script and come up with a uh, rational reason. But not the hidden, but not like a secret, uh, like to implicitly support the views of Islam. Is that what is that what we mean by Islamic philosopher? Always they don't care that they that they thought they present could potentially go against what they 
Yeah, so here is where we have to, like, to be fair, we would have to go through each one of them and to see where they land. We have the, what we refer to today are the philosophers who present themselves only as philosophers. He, I am only a philosopher. And they, I am, Islam paid of that? Well, yeah, so no, not Ghazali. For instance, Ibn Rushd, for instance, Al Kindi, for instance, Al Farabi. And to a very large extent, at least that's what we know from his works, Ibn Sina. These are people who presented themselves as philosophers. Okay. Only okay. and only. He did, none of those people will ever come and say, and I'm also a theologian, and I'm also an interpreter of the Quran, and none. No one. And the definition of philosopher is a he's been seen throughout, throughout, from the time until today, the definition of Islamic... No, no, of course not. So this is where I'm, I'm going to add another category. Okay. So for instance, today, there are people who will read the works of Al-Ghazali, for instance, good example, and they'll say this is all philosophy. And yet he says, I am not a philosopher, I am against all philosophers, and all philosophers are unbelievers. Okay, disbelievers or kuffar, they're all going to hell. Okay, and this is why. And if you read Tahafat al-Falasifah, that's what he's talking about, the incoherence of the philosophers. Okay, he says there are established truths in the scripture that the philosophers do not agree with. The scripture says that the world was created in time, and the philosophers deny that. And the scripture says there will be a ma'ad jismani, resurrection is going to, to be bodily. The Quran says your body is going to be resurrected. And the philosophers deny that. And, and. so he, he goes through them and he shows because of that, they, are not, they cannot be considered believers. And the philosophers reply that this is all metaphorical language for people who do not have the kind of intellect we do. Like you, Al-Ghazali. You want to take things at face value? This is for you, stay at that level. Okay, and this is the argument between them. Theologian school of Kalam uh, school of the theologians, and I'm also going to add what I call al-hikmah al-mutaaliyah, my own principles in there, and this is going to be my philosophy. He's creating a new system. He says everything that I say is, if someone has the kesh for the purity of heart to be able to experience it from the divine world directly, that's what they're going to see. And if they go back to the scriptures, they're going to find it. And if they go back to the reason, here are the proofs from reason. This is a strength of what he presented. Now, is it valid at every point? You have to do what you do with every other philosopher. Go line by line, word by word, and see what he's saying. But that's a claim. So it, no one can come and say, Mullah Sadr was only a philosopher. No. And this is the difference, let's say, between him and Ibn Rushd. Mullah Sadr, he spent his life going through, you know, Kitab al-Kafi and uh, writing a tafsir of seven volumes and, 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 which is a very different way of spending your life than say you are Ibn Rushd and you write three full commentaries on all the works of Aristotle. Okay, the, that's what we mean. So this is a philosopher. This one is using falsafah and he will say, I am as good as a philosopher, but he's not only a philosopher. And he has a pre-commitment, and he does say, all of this is truth, and I'm going towards the truth. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so just to build on that question, so with the yeah. last question, would you give one uh, priority over the other? Like, for example, like, Adam,